0: So let's uh, let's introduce Rob Parsons, and Rob is another one of those people who we were planning originally to uh, talk to in person when he was in town, and, and we know that all of our plans have changed, um, but we're glad to finally have him on here. Um, Rob, thanks for being here. It's great to be here, Rick Christopher. Cool, or at least virtually here. Um, uh, Rob, Rob is an associate with TBG Partners. Um, which is a, a firm that's done a lot of interesting work throughout Texas, including here in the DFW region. Um, he had his own consulting firm for a while, and when I first met him, he was uh, with Gateway Planning and was a senior planner there for for several years. Um, so uh, there's there's a lot that he has to say, there's a lot that, that he has to talk about, um, and I'm very curious, because based on conversations we've had before, I know that he's going to have a lot to say about how his firm and and how planning in general is going to have to adjust going forward as we're addressing this crisis. So, uh, Rob, welcome. Yeah, thanks
1: for having me. I'm always interested in how planning is activated at the human scale and how things look at at that small granular scale. And I think uh, COVID-19 has only made that more obvious in a lot of different ways I'm interested in talking about.
0: Yeah, nice. So you, so you um, having worked for just your own kind of little tiny boutique firm and another small firm, and now you're with um, you know, certainly what, what we might consider a, a mid-size to, to largest firm now with, with TBG. Um, what type of stuff have you been, been working on, and, and especially if you have anything in particular that you're thinking about very differently than you would have two months ago, I'd be particularly interested in that.
1: Yeah, pr- uh, previously at Gateway, we had done a lot of work on the entitlement side, physical planning, master planning at, at large scales, and then codes associated with that. And it's been fun now at TBG Partners, which does primarily a lot of landscape architecture and higher design and kind of finding the, the mesh between those two. And so um, I think there's a lot of value in in focusing on the details of design, and not just uh, the higher level planning. So, specifically, been able to work on some larger conservation developments projects I haven't I haven't worked on, and then also focusing down on uh, street
0: scale design. And can you tell our listeners um, what a conservation development is? So it's. Large tracts of land and, a
1: po- and typically what you would have is a family that wants to sell that is no longer useful to them in a purely agricultural sense, typically. And so instead of carving it up into small little ranchettes um, or large lot, typical suburban development, you take a more thoughtful approach where maybe there's some land that's set aside for uh, ecological Reasons, uh, or as common space as a HOA amenity, and then it's a way of uh, then focusing the development into areas that make more sense from a lighter
0: impact on the land, and so it's just a different approach to development. So it's it's almost essentially like you're in that context. It could be described almost like you're creating a village rather than then kind of a one-size-fits-all type of a subdivision, so to speak.
1: Right, yeah. So it's operating at kind of the far end of the transect of urbanism, but it's, it is a way of taking that village concept and having it make sense in a rural setting. So it's r- relevant, I guess, to our discussion today on COVID because there is a certain percent of the population that feels like having a respite away from other activity might make sense moving forward. I don't think that's, uh, from an equity standpoint, that's not something that's accessible to the majority of folks, but it is a certain portion of the population. But I think there is a way of taking some of those uh, some of those aspects of integrating green and natural environments and pulling that into uh, urban, stand, urban setting an urban context
0: well it's it's interesting that you brought up the the um the transect um, and you know the best way that I might describe it to to my listeners um, well maybe 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 I'll let you talk about it because that's i think that's a very important idea that came out of the new urbanism um, and is a is a really strong framework for thinking about how we how we plan places because sometimes um, we'll see something that feels out of place. That you might say, "Gosh, this would make sense if it were in a big city," but you're trying to put it maybe in a you know a smaller town context, and, and it doesn't. Can you tell, talk a little about the transect and how you how you think about that in your planning, especially going into these rural areas?
1: It's really just making sure that a certain development pattern and building type is appropriate for that particular context and what we've seen in the bland nature of suburbia and and sprawl in general is misapplying building types in a context where it doesn't make sense. Um, And then allocating space for vehicles where it doesn't make
0: sense. Right. You know, it's, it's interesting. The, the analogy that I kind of use to the transect that's, that's in, you know, so, so it's kind of this idea that, you know, you have maybe one set of rules if you're planning in a, a rural area, one if it's a more, you know, low density urban area, one if it's a, a downtown. Um, and the, the non-built form analogy I always use is, you know, if you saw someone walking around in, on a tuc- with a tuxedo in the beach, um, you might think that they were a little bit weird. But if you saw someone walking around you know, downtown San Francisco wearing a bikini, um, you might also think they're weird. Uh, and it's not that there's anything wrong with a tuxedo or, or a bikini, but it's it's really the context that it is. And I think that's, you know, when we think of built form, I think that, that that's a way that I, that I would think about it with the transect.
1: Yeah, so as we've been spending more time inside, and maybe looking out the window, whether it's our, you know, off our apartment balcony or out, out across our front yard, I think there's been more attention towards how, this, how the human interacts with the urban environment. So we talked about the transect as applied to development on the large scale, but I think also there's a transect from public to private space within the scale of uh, a single lot or a building as well. So when we think about um, the value of having a front porch or a small green in front of a house and a sidewalk close by, you have that gradation from the most private space on the interior of your house to the most public space out on the sidewalk. And having that those middle transect areas to be uh, interaction between the public and private space, I think is something that's really valuable and probably has been more on people's minds as we've been spending more time in our private spaces
0: it's it's um you know one of the things that's interesting about this kind of traditional development pattern that we talk about is the amount of emphasis that you have on what you might call the the semi-private and semi-public spaces um, and it, it turns out, as with many things, that there's a lot of benefits to this. Um, one of the things that I looked at, at at one point, I was doing some research on a project where we were we were looking at frontage standards and specifically how that related to the concept of crime prevention through environmental design um, and so and, and once you start looking at this, um, it 's again one of many examples of how this this timeless wisdom that we may not have understood it when we built it, but if you can't you know if, if you 're at a time before you have a cell phone and can call the police or whatever, um, having a bunch of people sitting on their porches or stoops or having things like bay windows um, is a way to sort of informally police the street that that everybody knows what 's going on, but it 's also a way to connect with your neighbors. Um, that may be in a crisis like this. Um, you're, um, you, know, you might, you might, might want to yell something or might have them stand somewhere where it's six feet distant, but you might not want them in, in your space. Um, are, would you say that that's informing any of your designs right now? Would you say that there's, there's kind of a special focus that you have on, on the semi-public, semi-private spaces? And how is that kind of manifesting itself?
1: Yeah, I've in the past primarily worked with form-based codes or a hybrid of form-based codes. And just to define that, it's, it's uh, an approach to zoning where instead of having use as the primary concern, use is still a concern, but instead of being primary, it's secondary to form. And it's, it's a reallocation of what your priority is when it comes to zoning. And Rick, you had mentioned uh, frontage standards, and that's something that's often a piece of form-based codes and is not necessarily a piece of conventional zoning. And so I think that probably has always been part of the discussion for clients that are interested in doing form-based codes. But with what's going on now, I think it might help make the argument for going to the extra level of detail of having those sorts of considerations, the interaction between the public and private realm through frontage standards. And I think a lot of the trends we're seeing, this being one of them, it isn't necessarily anything that's completely out of the blue or something that's completely new in a post-COVID world, but it's accelerating a lot of the trends we were seeing. And that probably applies to the types of open space we'll be seeing, maybe trends in transportation that maybe we can talk more about later. I could be wrong. There could be some, some black swan type things in an urbanist uh, sense of the word. But I think a lot of what we're seeing
0: is just accelerations of existing trends. So. You know, so one of, one of my thoughts right now is almost everything that I might recommend in, that I might have recommended two months ago. in general, I would recommend stronger now. you know like I think that that a lot of the things that were were very, I would say, extremely misguided and wasteful policies um, before or just not very helpful. Um, it, it's just more obvious and I think it's going to be more obvious to everybody. you know I think for example, um, you know if you have economic development policies that are um, in many cases almost exclusively focused on you know sort of smokestack chasing or, or you know supporting the big people from out of town um, when that when those millions of dollars go somewhere with a dubious return on investment, that was a bad idea before. but I think now if you 're doing that and not helping your your local businesses, it will be more obvious and I think you know for example, having these these plans that cost a lot of money and, and are not very application-oriented and sit on the shelf and not giving on-the-ground support to your, to your Main Street people. There, there's a lot of things that I think it's just the same but more. Um, there's one thing that is different, um, which is that, that, that I've been giving much of my thought to now because it's, it's requiring fresh thinking. The one thing that is different now is that for the foreseeable future we're going to have to figure out how to do all of these things while still maintaining some form of social distancing which obviously changes the dynamic of things like transit it also changes you know where you had a public space where at one point it was a success to have a public space that was completely packed and now that's not a success um, and and probably even going forward, even in five years from now, that that's going to at least be a thought in people's heads. What if there's a pandemic? How do we plan for that? Um, what are your thoughts on how we need to think about about planning? Um, that 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 kind of. Permit social distancing And we're, we're giving a lot of thought to reopening the economy So people have thought about restaurants and stores and things But they haven't thought a lot about things like How do you reopen public spaces Or how do you have How do you get meaningful public input Can you talk about what your thoughts are on that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Over Easter weekend, I'm I'm here in Austin, Texas, and it was a travesty to see that they had closed all parks and trails and public spaces, and I think that was the case in in some other cities as well. And the reason being is because they were they knew that leading up to that time, they were already being overloved and on a long weekend, they would be loved to death. <laughs> and it would be hard to manage those, uh, social distancing requirements. So th- if anything, I see that as a, a success of our open spaces and a success of people realizing the value of spending time outdoors. So it's sad that it uh, got to the point of having to close that down. And, and now we're starting to open those places back up with some restrictions, but I think it's, points of the need of moving forward to double down on the investments in open spaces. And I think that may take the form of some really uh, big investments like bond elections to add uh, open space and new places where there it's currently under, underserved. And it might take the form of smaller things like just building wider sidewalks and trails and uh, a better network of sidewalks and trails to create uh, parallel paths and things. So it's, all the traffic is not forced onto the, our most uh, popular routes.
0: One of the things that's being documented right now, um, in fact, the last conversation that we had was, um, was with Mike Lydon, who is, is best known for um, tactical urbanism, but in general, he's, he's just a really good planner. Um, another thing that he's known for is, is documenting kind of the open streets phenomenon. And I don't know if you saw this, but he's, he's documenting right now the temporary actions that cities around the world are taking um, to, to kind of open their streets up as a response to the COVID crisis and, and kind of give more public space for people. And I think that it's you know it's it's very much a no-brainer in my opinion to take some selected streets since we have less um, vehicular traffic or motorized traffic and give it to pedestrians and cyclists and so forth. Um, But it'll be it's interesting. I think it's an opportunity to maybe think more um, what we might say incrementally on it and think you know how can we where are some streets where we know based on the normal vehicular traffic counts. Um, that we can we can narrow the the what we allot to cars and and give more to people on other modes of transportation, um, so I think that's that 's going to be interesting to see, especially in parts of the world that may take a long long time to open up you know you look at something like New York um, unfortunately, they have a, a hard road ahead of them um, and uh, they might they might be several months. So they're going to really have to think about that, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's always been a fight of allocating what percentage of space within that right of way can be allocated to pedestrians versus parking and uh, vehicular movements or tra- dedicated transit. And I think what this has done is shown the value of the pedestrian. And even if we need to add uh, a little more space between Folks, that's almost. Uh, hopefully, it's just a temporary measure. But uh, what is long term is is the value of the pedestrian and the scale of pedestrian movement. So, hopefully, moving forward, we'll be able to reference back to these times and say, rather than the pedestrian being allocated to a small sliver on the outside of that right way we're able to get some more meaningful space and. Um, pay attention to the design of that environment, whether it's through uh, a better walking environment from landscape, a better uh, experience from the frontage standards from a a building standpoint. Um, But it'll be interesting to see how that allocation shifts over time and and how it hopefully our our argument is made stronger for us moving forward. What do you think the long-term impact
2: is going to be as far as kind of design standards. Uh, Rick kind of alluded to it with this idea of, you know, incorporating the ability to keep distance within public spaces. And you're talking about it right now. Um, we, I was, we were just doing some public engagement with one of our projects, and someone had mentioned, you know, well, what if in the space, you know, you kind of have the slab six feet apart, so. People know like if you're on the, this slab or that slab that you kind of know like if you're doing yoga or you're doing you know an outdoor exercise that, that kind of the design environment is set up so that people know that there are certain specific distance apart do you see this because I mean this has been a big deal obviously but you've seen it as big a deal as us starting to put certain things into our designs that are you know these, these, these public places will last a hundred years. Do you think we're, we're going to do some of those things where people will go, okay, like they they may not remember in 20 years why we did it, but do you, do you see us doing things like that? Or is that just something where we're just kind of go back to like, it's not going to have that level of impact on how we do things.
1: Mm, That's interesting. I I like the idea of design details that are cues that uh, give people reminders on spacing. Um, You know, I think those sorts of things, it's, it's interesting. The six foot distance is roughly proportional to a a human uh, height. So any of those sorts of design cues, I think maybe there's lasting impacts, even if it's beyond just social distancing requirements that help to tie in a human scale into the, into the environment. Um, And I do think that, it, I'm thinking from a, a private development perspective, in the past, there may have been among uh, some developers a, a need to, or a, a desire to just do the bare minimum of, of a requirement that the cities require, them, even in uh, privately oriented design standards sometimes. Only wanting to do what's seen as a, a bare minimum, but maybe that minimum has been increased because of these distancing requirements. So then, we'll kind of back our way into more usable sidewalks uh, using using COVID nineteen as a cover. So we'll see what happens with that.
0: It's some you know sometimes, for example, you know ADA laws, disability laws, um, you know which I'm I'm a, a big. Big advocate of I think it's it's essential, I also think that sometimes disability laws can have uh, negative unintended consequences, but sometimes they had very positive unintended consequences as well. you know, where cities were forced to create uh, sidewalk networks, for example with with decently spaced sidewalks um, when they when they hadn't done so before um, so we'll see with this if it I'm sure that it'll have some negative and and positive um, consequences. One thing that I just thought of, and you know, one of the things that I'm probably a broken record about, because um, I even said it as we were talking, is that the the development pattern that we had, you know, in this country until circa World War II um, was, you know, essentially a product of of thousands of years of trial and error. Where we didn't necessarily know, you know, it's it's the example of of the you know having the stoop or the balcony or whatever, where we we don't necessarily know why we're doing it, but there's a lot of good reasons to do it that our ancestors figured out. Um, One of the things that the the most fundamental thing in my view that started happening um, that may created problems in our development patterns is that we stopped thinking in terms of trial and error. We stopped having feedback mechanisms that told us this isn 't working for us. Can we do it a different way? Um, this may be a beginning of this might be the first crisis that really creates large scale trial and error for us. The first one that maybe will make us think differently about the way that we plan our places um, where we might just pass on some some wisdom i mean certainly certainly September eleventh for example, there were some responses to that, but i 'm not sure that that they were as deeply ingrained as I think this is likely to be in terms of how it might affect the design of our places.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, Our, our development has become so uh, commoditized and we're seeing just the same development patterns all over, all over the country um, typically or often misapplied into different areas. I'm, I am I've heard discussion on uh, will this be the end of multifamily housing? Will people want to flee cities? And all that type of talk, I think, is is way over place. But I think it does speak to some desire for um, a better approach to density. And what you're talking about is being able to Rather than one extreme or the other, work work with these trial and errors and these smaller granular granular level interventions, and it would be interesting to see if if this is another boost to uh, missing middle housing along those lines, so that we're able to, and I'm I'm using quotes, de-densify, but in a way that really is probably adding density to to a lot of places. But de-densify in the sense of instead of having a typical garden style three story walk up multifamily, we're able to have twelve unit, eight unit, smaller apartment complexes fitting into a a grid pattern that still may have the same, if not more, units per acre, but in a way that's done in a in a better design human skill.
0: Well, I think, and, and, and I'd like you to, to, to quickly uh, tell our listeners what um, a little bit about missing middle housing. Um, but to that point, I think A, um, it, it, the broader picture, it could be pointed out that right now um, we have about 4.3% of the world's population. Um, we have 28% or so of the deaths from COVID. Um, And we are more automobile-oriented, less private space-oriented, less intensive, dense, walkable cities than anybody. Um, and, you know, I'd love to think that we're, we're, we're going to just, that these are going to disappear, but it'll probably get worse. So, you know, whether or not um, density is certainly logically one factor, it's not the driving one because, you know, the other countries are much more pedestrian oriented, much more transit oriented than ours. And most do not have the problem on the level that, that we have. Yeah. Thanks for reinforcing that. Um, it's definitely, it's definitely a narrative
1: that unfortunately has taken hold among some circles, but I think it's self self serving and um, needs to be dispelled
0: yeah i mean we we have if you look at at even places that are you know if, if sometime pull up the map where it shows you know either the dots that show population density on earth or the circle that shows you know that that the source of this virus is in the middle of it, and half the world's population lives in this circle um you know you you have. Um, you know Japan and Hong Kong and Taiwan, and you know places that are r- very close to where this virus started that have nowhere near the problem that we have um, now i don't i don 't have an easy answer to why it would seem logical to me that these places would be worse off, but for for a complex of reasons they 're not um, and If you look at you know even for example New York, you have uh, you know uh, more cases and more proportion of people who have this Uh, in Queens, who have died of it in Queens, which is the fourth densest um, borough as you have in Manhattan, Um, and San Francisco, which got the policy right and and shut things down earlier than everybody thought was reasonable, um, has had very, very few deaths or or cases of this. Um, So I know, and and so I don't doubt that that's a factor, but I think that to call this a problem of density, I, I don't think the data... Supports it even as much as it 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 might reasonably seem like it would, I think it 's much more having the right policies in place at the right time before things get out of hand is is proving to be i think what 's been most effective um, but but that being the case, you know I think that that there's kind of when when people think of density and um, you know I think that they kind of think of it as being. And, and extreme, You know, a lot of people are surprised when they find out that that Paris, um, which really has, you know, n- no real residential high rises to speak of, um, you know, has a similar residential density to, to Manhattan, for example. Um, but, you know, a, a lot of times it's not these big jarring towers, but it's it's what we call missing middle housing. If, if you can tell us a little what that means and then why that's, in your opinion, going to be important going forward. Right. Yeah.
1: Um, it's just a, a general term, uh, referring to the residential building types that are between the high dense. Um, everyone has a a sliding scale on it, but I would say anything over, uh, five stories down to, um, the single family house on the other end of the spectrum. And so in between that, you have a lot of different housing types that were more common in the pre-World War II era that you had mentioned that are less common now. Um, so at the lower scale end, you may have duplexes and triplexes, which are still uh, somewhat common, but less of what we have is the fourplex and sixplex on typical urban lots. Um, and then the small multifamily buildings, which I find particularly interesting or something that that's rarely done now. Uh, even if we build zoning codes that allow for it, um, it's something that's, that's not typical anymore, unfortunately, because I think that's a housing type that would be pretty popular. And even if the, uh, densification blame for COVID is, is, uh, not true at all, if that narrative takes root, I think there still is that opportunity to highlight these missing middle housing types as a solution, whether or not it's actually a solution. <laughs> it's it can be an appeal to the marketplace where maybe there there wasn't an appeal previously.
0: Well, and I think a lot of people, you know, they, there's a, a perception, you know, when they think of of apartments. Um, they think of really badly done apartments. They don't think of necessarily a, a range of gentle ways that you might incorporate multifamily housing into into a neighborhood. You know, so in my area of you know North Oak Cliff in, in Dallas that I live in, um, you know, you have a lot of single family homes. You have more modest homes. You have coach houses. You have small apartment buildings. Um, duplexes, quadplexes, and they can, they can live in harmony with each other, um, and it's a traditional way of, of, of doing things. Um, one of the things that that means is that I can have a lot of, of neighbors with a lot of different economic backgrounds, for example, um, who can all live near each other, and it doesn't require a big government subsidy. Um you know I can walk there 's a there 's it 's got to be a block away from me i mean there 's a single family home that 's just you know must be six six bedrooms i mean i don 't can 't even imagine how much the person paid for it um You also have a variety of small apartments I have no doubt that I can walk a block and and there are people who are Um, you know multi multi millionaires many times over um, and I can walk a block and there are people who are um, you know undocumented immigrants they they're probably not living in in the um, the best unit but even despite the gentrification of my neighborhood people with very low incomes um, who can live together Um, and I think that that's that's a powerful thing about this, especially because we're not going to have a lot of money just to, to subsidize everything. It's like, can you think? Is there an opportunity to have a coach house or something, which can bring, you know, which is a gentle way to bring in a little bit more density and offer people more alternatives than um, than just popping in maybe a, a huge soulless apartment complex.
2: I think the thing that the missing middle kind of helps provide, and, and what Rick's one part of what Rick's alluding to that I think people have concerns about with apartments, is you just have like a little space, right? You don't have any semi-public space that people feel comfortable gathering in because there's so many people that, you know, um, unless you're extremely extroverted, maybe you don't want to be in that. But whenever you have this this mid-level, then you kind of know your neighbors, you have a space where you actually kind of have a yard, so to speak, right, that people can utilize. And I I think that's what people crave a lot of the time that you that you really don't get with a lot of different apartments because you know it's just like well here's your apartment and yeah you know there's walkways um, but generally the walkways are just to get your from your parking to your to your room right because it's just like 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 Rob mentioned you know it's it's a matter of you know what's the bare minimum that they have to put in here to make make all the numbers work and you know oh well this land's not as buildable, you know, maybe it's in a floodplain or whatever. Let's put a parking lot over here and then we'll put a little pathway over to here. There there, there will almost always be some sort of shared amenities in most places where people live. But if you're doing this this middle ground, right, this missing middle, um, a lot of the time you see these little courtyards and these places where, you know, if you have a pet, a place where you can relax, a place that's semi, semi-public, semi-private, where you know, you're going to pretty much know everyone that's that's utilizing that space, or that that's supposed to be utilizing that space, or being welcome to utilize that space. Obviously, you can have friends over, but it, I think we we have this craving to have those that connection to the outdoors. And the general thought with an apartment is, I just have a little box, and I don't get anything else.
1: Yeah, that attention to design details really what can make or break it, and even in Larger multifamily complexes. I think there's a way to to do it right. I mean, if your circulation is on the exterior of the building, if there's a good use of front stoops, um, what you had mentioned, kind of the that interface between the public and private realm, all those things really matter. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, all these things we've talked about regarding the human scale of urbanism boil down to. People enjoy being around other people. Maybe it's not right next to other people. Um, there's that, like uh, a lot of what we've talked about, there's that transect. I mean, you, you want to be near people, but maybe not r- right next to them, especially now, you know, we're cognizant of what that spacing is. And I often think about one of the best, uh, maybe a documentary is too strong of a word, but. William White's film that I think was done in the 70s, The Social Life of Small Urban Spaces. Anyone that's, after you're done listening to this, go on YouTube, and I think it's available on there. But yeah, William White, W-H-Y-T-E. It's one of the most entertaining examples of how people interact with each other in small urban spaces, and um, does a great job of depicting how people like being in the sun, like having movable furniture, like how they interact with buildings, um, how they interact with each other, wanting to be close, but not too close. And all those sorts of little details, I think are things that really are something that's always mattered in our design. And a lot of those things that um, hopefully we've incorporated over time, but I think we need to pay even more attention to moving forward
2: you brought up something i just i feel like i had a i don't know if it's an epiphany maybe this has been the thought for forever um rick likes this i think it's interesting you know you put furniture out in urban places it doesn't get stolen a lot and my first thought whenever you said you know furniture that's movable i i really 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 hate when things are bolted down someone's like you want to sit there I'm, I'm like no no I, I i love it if it's if i can move it if i can't move it I really like even if it's just you can just turn it, it's it's not comfortable at all. Um, and it's interesting because maybe maybe the reason this urban furniture isn't stolen is the person says, you know what? If I steal this, then maybe next time I have to sit in a in a bolted down one and I don't wanna have to do that. <laughs> that that that's how bad it is. That's how terrible it is. But everyone's kinda like you know, if I do this, and we're all going to have, then the next place I go and sit down, maybe it's not even here. But I don't want to start a trend of having to sit and bolted down. That that's how terrible bolted down furniture is. It's so uncomfortable that even people that are like, I need a chair at home. It's like it's not worth it if I have to sit on bolted down furniture in places. It's so uncomfortable.
0: You know, it, it's one of the things that I love about about um, what what you brought up and about White's work is. Um, that he based so much of it on observation. Um, you know, and, and I've we've, we've had, um, you know, sometimes we'll be talking about, you know, when we're negotiating a contract or something and, and people will sometimes be like, well, you're doing, you know, observation. Um, it's, it's almost like if you have enough hours into it, it, it almost looks like you're not doing real work in a way uh, to, to some people, but it's actually... Just looking and seeing how people use a space is where you get the real insights. And I think um, White figured out things about these public spaces that nobody had figured out really before him um, because they weren't even noticing, really, that, you know, we have all of these spaces that were, you know, we're in Manhattan. This is prime, prime real estate. We have the public spaces. Are they actually working? And it turned out that these tiny little details were why it worked and and didn't work. Um, you know, I would say, as somebody who uh, has um, uh, probably um, an imbalanced sense of of reverence for for Jane Jacobs, um, but but I uh, I certainly think that she made you know massive leaps. Um, past anybody else who was publishing anything at the time um, without a strong academic background, at least formal academic background in planning or urbanism or anything, primarily by making observations and primarily by looking at what's there um, because that's really how you test your hypotheses and, and kind of figure out what works. Um so that's that's kind of interesting. Um I do want to go back you you've brought up kind of human scale and attention to detail a couple of times. Um and earlier in our conversation you you had said that a human scale and attention to detail matters more sort of during the COVID crisis and its aftermath than it did ever before. Can you tell me more about why um why you think that?
1: Yeah, d- um You know, like I said, I hope it's something we've all paid attention to previously. I think moving forward, it will matter probably just because we're more cognizant of uh, the space around us and how we interact with other people. Um, Hopefully we're also able to spend more time in spaces that we're able to interact with other people. I mean, hopefully that becomes something that we cherish more since we've had to spend time apart. And so being able to spend time in high-quality plazas or parks or spending time on the trail, there's a a greater appreciation for that since it was taken away from us. (laughs) Um, It's it's also interesting. One thing I've noticed, um, just a lot more people in my neighborhood at all times of day, but specifically in the late afternoons, walking by, uh, whether you know with their family members or dogs or alone. Um, and for a while I thought, well, it's because everyone's stuck inside working from home and they just need some fresh air at the end of the day. Then I realized we were kind of stuck inside our offices all day anyways. So to that degree, it hasn't changed. And I think what has changed is a lot of folks have more time because they don't have a commute. And so so that's interesting to think about is if you're saving, um, you know, whether it's 30 minutes a day, some people it's probably up upwards of two hours a day that they're not no longer commuting, you're able to appreciate um, that extra time in different ways. And so so one of those ways is having more free time to just, explore your neighborhood um interact with folks at a distance um get some fresh air and so moving forward i mean uh, maybe there's a, a way to uh solidify some of this work at home schedule
0: and ha- and be able to retain that time that otherwise is spent in a car right um you know i wasn't i wasn't expecting to to ask you about this but you bring up something i've been thinking about or you you are uh, suggesting a, a segue to something that I've been thinking about quite a bit, um, that I think is going to be both a big challenge and and a big opportunity. Uh, so what we are doing is is you know basically this crisis is essentially forcing people to figure out how to work without a centralized office, um, and I think that that's going to be that's going to be a challenge for. A lot of big cities and especially for for highly concentrated industries. Um, you know you look at at, you know, for example, the the financial industry in New York. Um, which I have no doubt that there were very, very logical reasons for them to be highly centralized, but maybe they'll say, you know, we figured out how to do it, how to not do it. Um, London, which is, you know, dealing with two kind of structural crises right now with Brexit as well. I mean, the city of London might find a very different role, right? But what it also, what I suspect may happen is that it may change the the need to, sort of the psychological need, not necessarily to be in an office and not necessarily to share an office as we go forward, but to be in an office every day, which gives you a lot more options. On the one hand, it could probably mean that, you know, you could work in Plano and live out in East Texas somewhere, if that's what you want to do, um, or, you know, in a rural area, let's say. But it could also mean that you could, you know, you can live in a small town somewhere or that you can say you know what I'm in the, the sort of the southern uh, sector of of the Dallas region southern Dallas and its suburbs um, which has not seen that the you know concentration of offices you could live in a you know a Lancaster or a DeSoto or a Duncanville or a southern Dallas and say you know what I've got a job up in Frisco but I only need to be there two days a week and, and I can work I can work remotely um, have you given any thought to so? So this could mean something like a co-working model um, could work better going forward. Something like you know for people who don't want to be at home every day, um, but it could also change a lot of the dynamics of where you need to live and, and proximity, um, especially to office jobs. Um, have you given any thought to that, or do you, or other types of of consequences there might be? if people can work from home more and, and not have the, the daily commute necessarily all at the same time.
1: Yeah. Earlier we had mentioned that there may not necessarily be new trends that come out of this. It's just an acceleration of existing trends. And I think this is a great example of that. Um, you know, we we've seen the rise of co working and remote working. Um, and I think this is just kind of forced the hand for a lot of companies to accelerate um that the pace of that. Um, and I've, I find it hard to believe that we'll go, this will be an example of us going completely back to normal. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the statistics are that come out of this, but just speaking anecdotally, uh, TBG partners, we have roughly 120 employees and the transition, um, to working from home, you know, credit to our IT department, but it was fairly smooth. And we've been able to work uh, pretty seamlessly uh, across the offices. And we have offices in the major Texas cities. And I think one of the benefits that have come out of it is it's just as easy for me to work with someone now in the Dallas office as it is in the Austin office. And so I think from an urbanism standpoint, We'll see more of that, more of that blending, as you said, of probably a live and work dichotomy, uh, a, f- a physical location for a live and work. Um, who, you know, I think it's kind of yet to be seen exactly how that plays out in the market. Um, you know, once again, I think I s- we'll see some of the acceleration of trends, but we'll probably have more attention given to having a better work setup at home. Um, And then I think we'll continue to see um, a conventional model also. I mean, I I don't think that should be dismissed as, uh, you know, the the regular commuter patterns and all that, but um, the impact of urbanism could be significant in that people – are not commuting one or two days a week. And so we're able to spend more time um, in appreciating the walkable nature of our neighborhoods.
2: I think it's all very much going to depend on the, the businesses. So I think finance or finance or however you want to say it, um, it's really important to have trust um, because someone's handling your money. Right. And I don't think people are generally putting their money into institutions unless they've, Physically met with someone at some point. Handshakes are not going to go away because of this, right? Maybe they're you know not trending at all right now, but they're going to like it's going to be weird if someone's not going to want to shake somebody's hand in six months, right? Like people will be like, really? Like there's this I there's something that happens when we're around people. It's like why long distance relationships are well, one of the reasons a long distance relationship is difficult, and it's why a collaborative effort. Can be it, honest. I mean, it's more difficult to be collaborative if you're not in the same space. The problem that I think we have a lot of the time with companies is you need space to get away, you need space to really do deep thinking, deep work. Um, and in those times, you do need to be away from people. And it's great to be home and it's great to kind of be isolated. It's great to, um, be able to take that, you know, I know I have a friend, I won't say who he is, but he was like, you know, I'm able to take 30 minutes off now and just go for a walk. And I feel so much better. He's like, I didn't do that at work. You don't feel like you can do that at work. But when you're at home, you can do that. And he's, and he's like, he keeps me sane and then I can get get right back to doing it. He's like, I don't lose any time. I get as much done as I did before. And it's, it's really interesting because I think, like you said, the st- statistics are gonna be fascinating because the different businesses are it depends on what you do and how you work and and I do think that it's going to be some working from home some working from the office but I also know that there's a ton of people it just seems to take longer to do a lot of the things it's 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 interesting that you say you know you can work as well with the people in Austin as Dallas but don't you do you, I like do you think that if you're in uh, if you're able to work in the same office and you're doing a collaborative effort that it's still just as easy to work with someone in Dallas as it is Austin where you're in Austin.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, it, it really can't be one or the other. I mean, just like in just a, the market approach to housing types, as we talked about before, it's not a one size fits all there's different strokes for different folks. And I think, uh, a couple days a week it makes sense to be in person around a table you know designing in a studio environment and then yeah there's time to be working alone i think having that flexibility though and being able to choose and right size is really what uh hopefully as 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 a society we're able to grow that options and freedoms moving forward
2: and like you said this is accelerating that process because I think younger people have been wanting that. Older people are like, "How do we know they're going to get stuff done?" It's like, "Cause you got to get stuff done. Like you're going to get stuff done." Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that's kind of gone away. At maybe ten ten years ago, that was more of a um, stigma about working from home. But I do think that this is accelerating the trends that have that have existed or been moving towards and. It'll be really interesting to see, but I I don't see the financial district because people are going to have to, you're going to have to, you know, when you have, when you're taking care of different people's money, whenever you have a bank, whenever like branches aren't going to go away, you're not going to not have, I mean, you got
1: to have some level of human interaction at a certain point when you're. Absolutely. And um, to kind of take that in a little bit different direction from a, a retail standpoint, I think experiential retail will still matter more than other more than ever um you know, restaurant dining small scale retail um that's unique to a place will matter more than ever um so so yeah by no means should it be taken as uh it'll be taken to the
2: extreme T- talk about that a little bit more because i 100% agree with that i think uh, essential retail is going away like we we we're really really learning how to get all of our essentials like I don't need to go shop for toilet paper or paper or whatever, like some basics, some of the food, some food items, some food items, it's nice to, to, to kind of peruse. But I, what, what's kind of your thought with that? Because I, I 100% agree that um, I, th- I think experiential retail is going to be incredibly popular moving forward and, and kind of is craved right now in certain ways. But. Um, What's kind of that line like I I think some of it's going to be okay more online and some of it's going to be I I still want to go out I still want to go shop and we're in Dallas so everybody wants to do that apparently.
1: Yeah I hate to always bring it back to design but I think there's uh, I think in a lot of ways design does matter when it uh, in regards to retail so I think about the experience you have going to Bishop Arts to use an example uh, from Yellow's Neck of the Woods. There's, you can't replicate that experience through any type of online shopping or any type of a virtual, uh, interaction. I think it's just something that has to be experienced. And the reason, uh, there's value in that is because of the streets, the storefronts, the scale and ratio between all those things, um, uh, interacting other people, interacting with other people on the sidewalk, um, the types of retail that are there, all that um, is just a special experience. So that's the kind of things that I think will continue to thrive.
2: Personally, why do you, whenever you do that, like what is it that, that you really enjoy whenever you're in that environment that can't be replicated online? Like why, why would you rather be in Bishop Arts than ordering your coffee from some to-go and have it delivered
1: well, I think it speaks to uh, what it is to be human. It's it's uh, to be around other people, to feel a sense of enclosure, but not too much enclosure. The scale of the the buildings of the streets, and then uh, in regards to the type of retail, I think it's having uh, the opportunity to buy goods that are rooted in place, that are unique to that space, so that you know a cup of coffee from. Oddfellows isn't the same as uh going to starbucks that you can go to anywhere in the world so um yeah i think there's something to be said for that and it, the popularity and and uh i often think of the yogi Berra quote that nobody goes there because it's too crowded so the popularity uh is is uh a testament to its success. And we need more of those places and not less. And And they don't need to be further restricted from due to social distance or closed down due to social distancing. We need to replicate it in more neighborhoods.
0: One of the things that, you know, B- Bishop Arts, is, as um, I have certain things that I've been a broken record about for for many years. In fact, um, I spoke specifically um, in uh, Galveston about, you know, some some thoughts that I had about what how Bishop Arts should be investing at, at the American Planning Association uh, statewide conference, um, and and I think that and you know um, for those who who don't know the area, this is kind of a a, a couple of blocks of um, you know very popular stores and restaurants and galleries and bars and so forth that are that are in uh, in Dallas um, is the, the Bishop Arts neighborhood. Um, one of the things that that I've always said is that there were some very modest investments that we should have been making. And we were making a lot of very big investments, for example, having what's called, you know, tax increment finance money that, that was helping to support, you know, these kind of larger developments, but not making the the modest investments that could be made. Um, one of the things that, that I think about, you know, when you're talking about, I think how the COVID crisis is is making a focus on the human scale and and so forth more important? Um, I think on the one hand, it, 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 people are going to want to experience places more. People are cooped up; they have needs to socialize. There needs to be ways to do that that's as safe as possible and as inclusive as possible um, to to people who are are you know who are not as, as able to to leave their house or not as comfortable leaving their houses. Um, but I also think that it makes it more important because the the failure to plan on the human scale is creating real problems for us. And when you're not focusing on the human scale, you actually when when everything is is grandiose and it's sort of you know these these really big projects, um, we don't have the budget for that anymore. Um, you know we do have the budget. The examples that I like to give. You know, we, we could, going forward, in the example of the Bishop Arts neighborhood, hire a full-time Main Street director. The city of Dallas has and spends the money for that. They could be supporting social media. They could be supporting websites. They could be getting grants for some of these businesses so that we, we don't lose too many of them in the future. They could be running, you know, events and so forth. Um, these are very human-scaled interventions that we can actually afford to do, and, and we're in a lot of trouble because we haven't done them. Um, The the neighborhood is not going to thrive as much because we haven't made those types of investments in the neighborhood. Um, You're, you know, you're with a a larger firm that, you know, is involved in in things like landscape architecture um, that does some of these larger projects. Um, Those aren't going to go away. Um, but do you see, the, you know, I, and I know that you guys are, are, you know, getting together on a regular basis. And you know, I've talked to some of the senior management there. So I know you're discussing a lot of ideas on a regular basis. Do you see a need to do more or to shift things towards these kind of smaller scale interventions? Do you see this as something that needs to be integrated more and that that's more urgent because of this? Or what are your what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think first of all, um, embedding these types of design principles, this timeless way of approaching, uh, human scale design should be something that should be incorporated into your typical, um, master plan community to make it not typical, um, to, to make, to make it have more of a sense of place. I mean, those, uh, to your point though, that pattern of development, I don't think is, is going away if um but i think there is interest and even in some of the conventional developers to incorporate some of these types of things so that the uh sense of place is not just wrapped around a logo and a brand there really is a sense of uh place to the to the neighborhoods but uh, on the other end of the spectrum i think there's an opportunity and we're seeing it um in some projects where there's infill opportunities in uh first and second ring suburbs and i think we're only going to see those opportunities increase as uh christopher you alluded to the decline of conventional retail i think we'll have a lot of these commercial spaces open up that'll be prime for redevelopment and hopefully that's an opportunity not to just uh dust off the conventional retail and try and and extend that broken pattern of development, but to reinvent it into the experiential retail, it's probably dialed back in scale. And then also hopefully to incorporate uh, new residential types. And I think that will add diversification both on the retail and commercial side, but also um, adding those residential types into an area that's primarily single family will help to fill in that whole uh, spectrum of development and add it add in a a missing piece of that transect that we had talked about
0: all those big boxes the the malls that that are, are not working out the strip malls um those are definitely big opportunities and most of the opportunities in those types of places that have typically been discussed are very you know for for places with very strong development pressure where you see kind of a lot of these ideas that are discussed and published or a lot of these projects where, great, you've got a developer who can come in with $50 million and the market works to do it. Um, but, you know, things like how we creatively rethink places that that aren't as thriving, where you have space now, you have empty retail, you have... You know, probably a better chance of building consensus around doing something different because you can legitimately go back to the community and say, you know, we can do some modest apartments here, or this can keep being empty. Um, I think is is um, is a big is a big opportunity. That's something that we're you know we did some of that stuff as I think you know in in you know Hearst and in Desoto with different types of, of interventions. Um, but there's there's a lot more that I think we're going to be looking at doing. So we'll we'll have to talk to you about that as we as we go forward. Um, I know that, that uh, you know, TBG, um, you're definitely a firm that, that I, I respect and I know that we we actually collaborated with you on a project, on the um, uh, a demonstration project, the Crowdus project in Deep Ellum, about five years ago now, um, uh, five years and, and a week, and um, you guys are discussing, I know, having a lot of, of um, um, April 28th to May 1st, 2015, for those of you who kept track of that. Uh, you guys had a lot of, um, I know you all are having some some discussions regularly about ideas of how to rethink places. Is there an idea or two you'd like to share with us that you have that's, that's kind of uh, different that you're kind of thinking of as a firm for how... To think through all the stuff
1: yeah we've we've spent a lot of time on these higher level discussions and I think a, a lot of it there's not necessarily were to any resolution on anything I think there's value in kind of talking through these trends but some of the more detailed things that we are talking about is open space at at different scales so some of what we alluded to earlier is um, even smaller pocket greens how to integrate that into urban projects and um, how to provide value at all scales of development. Um, But yeah, I mean, I I think also just uh, returning back to the comment of how do you make something that's maybe a little bit more on the conventional end of the development spectrum? How do you incorporate some of these urbanism principles into it? And that's why um, it's kind of, well, say sad to say from a from a urbanist. Of, I live in Central Austin, and I know Rick, you live in Central Dallas. But uh, from our perspective, sometimes there's better examples of urbanism in in uh, Plano or Frisco, and and some of the new development. It's it's been easier to incorporate some of those principles and private development standards than it is in infill developments in the the central major cities. And that's for a whole number of reasons. Uh, (laughs) We don't need to go into the dynamics of local politics, but I think um, there's something to be said for the urbanization of suburbs and incorporating walkability into areas that wouldn't be at the top of someone's mind as shining examples of urbanism. But um, I think I think there are opportunities that interject that a lot of those design principles into suburban contexts.
0: And you know, I think I think that a huge mistake that we make is is to kind of only think that that a handful of of places that might be higher profile are valuable. Um and I think that that we're very quick to dismiss most of of the country as as being something that you know that we can't really help. I think that's a huge mistake, um, and I think that you know we have to look at places that are you know maybe strip malls or places that are you know maybe a, a downtown that was never really thriving, and figure out the next the next steps to, to take. Um, you know I I always um, ask people to kind of define a term that that might be specialized. Um, one specialized term um, that I was actually talking about this, we, we did a podcast that hasn't been published yet, but hopefully will by the time anyone hears this, with, uh, with Sarah O'Brien, who's in your area and who you need to, to connect with. Um, the, the term urbanism is so confusing to the public um, because it's a, it's a shorthand for kind of this set of timeless principles. It's kind of a shorthand for the way that we built not only our big cities, but our our, our small cities, our small towns, our, our villages. It's this set of, of principles that we call urbanism. And, and most people, when they hear urbanism, they think you know big, intense city. They think Hong Kong. You know, you can't say, "Oh, this the great urbanism in this town in East Texas." Um, what what I think that that boils down to is that you know you have kind of urbanism being shorthand for, let's say, the way that we built in this country before World War II and and the way a lot of the world is still built. And this kind of what we might call conventional suburbia, which is the way we've mostly been building things since then. Um, And so this challenge is you have this, this kind of system that's mostly for the car, that's mostly very standardized, that's mostly very financialized. And how do you build these timeless principles into it kind of it's, you know, how do you, and, and it's, it's just step by step. It's like, you're not, you know, we're not going to, to put downtown McKinney in the middle of, of, you know, a, a greenfield or an infill site in the middle of the suburbia, but it's like, how do you start to, to build these concepts and tweak them? Um, what I think is very interesting is that once you understand the concepts it can be shockingly rewarding to apply them in, in almost any type of context. And it's, it's a surprise for people when it's not what they're expecting. You know, when you, when you go to, it's like to go back to the example of DeSoto. Um, you know, when you go to you know, a very, what was a very ordinary strip mall in DeSoto and see a public gathering space and see a multi-vendor market and see all of these creative little restaurants and retail space and offices, it, it blows people away. Um, and it's something that, you know, is, is even because we had outdoor public space and outdoor commerce, it's something that's even succeeding now where people are going and, and eating and social distance gathering even, even here. So yeah, I think, I think that that's a, that's probably a long way of, of, uh, of saying that I think these things need to go into a lot of different contexts.
1: Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. And as planners, I think we should always be mindful of not creating a false dichotomy um, saying one place is good and one place is bad. I mean, there, there's examples of great urbanism in all types of contexts. And when I was working in downtown Bastrop, it's one of my favorite little main streets, and it's only two blocks. And I would call that great urbanism, but I don't think anyone there would appreciate uh, using that, that term urbanism, to, to your point, um, but at all different scales. I mean, I, I think... Um, I I wish there was a better word for it, but really human scale design term we've been using uh, throughout this podcast, I think is really what's applicable, whether it's the um, small, semi temporary interventions um, you may have in a strip center, the type of stuff that Monty Anderson does. um, I I love that kind of development all the way on up. um, I think. Every at every scale, there's good things happening, and we need to reinforce it where we can and make things better where there's opportunities for improvement.
2: You bring up an interesting point there with this false dichotomy and saying, you know, this place is good and that place is bad. You know, uh, the same way with saying, well, this place is safe and that place is not. You know, I think one of the worst possible things that could come out of this, I don't see it coming out of this, but if there was some new federal guideline for all public spaces. Right, because you would just ruin thousands and thousands of smaller public spaces that just don't have the ability to follow whatever guidelines they are. Right, if you know, oh, this this public space is safe enough for one person. Right, like, or some ridiculous, or it's just like the the last thing that I would want to see is is the you know some federal federal regulation of of public spaces. I think. I think like you're talking about, it's it's good to have, we're gonna have, I think we're gonna see both. We're gonna see people take it more into account. And we're gonna see people take it less into account. And then, you know, as people use it and interact with it, we'll see which ones and how they work out. And then we'll kind of learn from there. Um, but I, yeah, I, I don't think we need to go changing everything too dramatically. Um, whenever we don't really know what, what things are going to be like, um, and you brought up Monty, Monty, you know, I think about you were talking about missing middle and Monty and all these different things. He, whenever he was on the podcast, he talked about you know having local grocery stores and when you were talking about having you know more more of the localized places that are popular, I immediately thought of London. I loved London because you have this bar pub culture where it's not anything like the United States. It's very much, you know, you have families and you'll have there'll be kids there. It's just a community, like the community comes together. There's pubs on so many different corners and you go and you just kind of hang out and drink some beer and talk about stuff. And um, it's not anything like we have here. Um, it's kind of like a coffee house here, I guess. So it is like that, but it's, it's very different and it's very unique. And, uh, I do think we, we have a craving for those things and we need more of them.
1: Yeah. In my neighborhood, uh, we have the blue bonnet Mart, which is just a convenience store with a laundromat next door. And it, it's a terrible looking building. Um, (laughs) but it is, it is the heart of the neighborhood in every sense of the word. Uh, MJ guy who runs it has a, a picnic table out there. And I mean, it is unbelievable the amount of activity that comes through there and it really is the heart for all ages and you can uh, get a burger, you can get get your little box of wine like I do and it's a great place to hang out um, and draws everyone in primarily uh, by foot into this location and it really is the heart of the neighborhood and it's something that isn't, isn't conventional, but it's something that needs to be replicated.
2: Random question, uh, real quick: on the uh, picnic table, are the uh, benches bolted down, or you, can you move them around?
1: <laughs> it is. It's a it's a one piece picnic table. You probably wouldn't like it, but if you come and visit, I'll bring you a chair. And well, I was move thinking it about
2: it, but picnic tables are okay because you know you can you can adjust left to right, and they they have a wider. You see, you have choice by where you move versus where the furniture moves.
0: You know you brought up you brought up something that made me think about about my experience of austin and how much it challenged my understanding of of what i considered good urbanism to be um and i i i wanted to share and, and see if you thought it you know i i um um if you look at it, so so for example like we're we're both we're both people who've i don't know how much you identify as a new urbanist i know you have your you're CNU, so, so you must, and you've been to Congresses and so forth. If you look at the charter of the new urbanism you know from, from back in the 90s, right? Um, almost the whole thing, it, it talks very little about people. It talks, it, as, as revolutionary as a document as it is, um, it talks mostly about kind of physical places. And if you look at Austin just from the perspective of, of the physical built form of it, um it doesn't have a lot that could be considered to be good urbanism uh, it doesn't have a lot you know uh, it's it, it has a lot of areas that are kind of you know half kind of sprawly or things like that um, you have you have a couple of them but but there's you know compared even to to dallas um, there's very little and so if you look at if you judge the urbanism from the perspective of the buildings and so forth um you're not, gonna, you're not gonna get much, or even how the buildings relate to the streets and, and everything like that. If you judge from the perspective of a human being who might start in downtown Austin and might be walking from neighborhood to neighborhood, it's actually a wonderful experience. Um, and a lot of that is, is, is I, in my opinion, because of things like having you know food trucks and micro vendors that naturally fill in gaps in the urban fabric. A lot of it is is sort of the, the, the signage and the character that it's, you, you know you're, you're definitely in Austin. And a lot of it is actually what the programming is there. So if I'm walking down the street, and it's also, the, the streets are not, you know, as, as much as people complain about certain highways in Austin, they're not really cut up by highways. You can kind of walk comfortably throughout much of the core of the city. Um, but if, if, you know, if I'm walking down the street, I might be going past something that might be kind of a, a little strip mall. You know, you have some one row of cars in the front. But I look over, I'm like, there's looks like that's a great little coffee house. There's a great little store. There's all of these things. So really, it's not only about built form, as, as important as built form is. Um, that's, that's part of it. But it's really about the human experience of the person who's there. And so the real goal is not always and everywhere to build a, a final main street, but to think of what the experience of, of the person is there. One of the thoughts I have a lot about form-based codes, um, and, and I, I'd, I'd like your thought on this, you know, for example, if, you're, if you have a form-based code, you have this, this ideal typically, which might be considered, you know generally, ideally, we'd like to have a, a traditional main street with three-story Audubon know this type of fenestration these type whatever it might be um and when some when a building doesn't match up to that ideal so you let's say you have a gas station a lot of times what i see is that it's sometimes focused on the building so you say this gas station is not the building that we want hopefully at some point the building will go down and we can replace it with a better building but it doesn't think usually um as much as what is the experience of this person because if this gas station becomes a place that they serve Beer, hamburgers out of, and they have seating. um, Then it can become, you know, then then it can become a delightful addition to the entire place. Um, What what do you? I I'm thinking that one of the effects that we might have of this whole thing is to kind of accelerate our thinking about the human experience being the important thing, and other things going from that instead of it just being primarily about the buildings, which is what makes us dismiss you know most of the place where people live do you have any thoughts on that have you have you been thinking about things that way or just being in austin help help you to think in that way in any regard or do you disagree with my observations
1: no i i agree with that observation and i also appreciate the fact that even though austin has a great reputation i find better examples of urbanism in many other places and i, I think uh Houston and Dallas get bad raps relative to Austin. Cause I think there's wonderful neighborhoods in both those cities that don't get their, their fair, fair day in court. But, um, yeah, to your point, I think the human experience in Austin is good, despite a lack of missing middle housing. And, um, to that, I mean, we have almost no townhome to speak of from, uh, that whole building form. Um, Mid-scale apartment complexes are only found in older neighborhoods. Um, it's uh, hasn't been developed in a long time. Hopefully, that will change with our new land development code. But that's been in the works for seven years now, and who knows what what COVID will do to it. But I think the redeeming
0: twenty thirty you'll have it. Yeah,
1: I think the redeeming factor is uh, we do have high-quality trails and open space, and it continues to be made um, even more high quality. And a lot of attention is given to that. To your point about the human experience mattering and, uh, the building form not mattering as much, or maybe we place too much uh, focus on that. I would agree to a certain degree to a certain point. I think where the tipping point occurs is whenever it becomes auto oriented. And I think you probably would agree. Um, you know, the gas station doesn't matter as much. It could become something else. Um, and that building itself could remain and change uses. But if it remains uh, car traffic going through, so if it was to change it to a drive-through of some sort, maybe it would still diminish that pedestrian experience. And um, so, so, yeah, I think to get less hung up on Meeting a minimum building requirement. I mean, I, it drives me crazy when I see form-based codes that require a two or three-story building when the market may not Ever get to that point And a one-story building with great frontage would be just as The important thing is not having the car as the primary object to To revolve the world around. It's that pedestrian experience
0: Okay, cool um, Rob, uh, we should, uh, another, another great conversation. The last time we talked, I said, um, we need to record this. So I'm glad that, that we did. Um, I will leave you with, uh, with whatever you would like, uh, our listeners to hear as the final work.
1: Yeah, well, I appreciate y'all having me on here. I'm just really glad to be able to share and talk about these things. I've, we had such a wide ranging conversation on, I think maybe every planning, issue from a, from a physical design standpoint, but I would just, uh, whoever's listening to this say, continue to, uh, be positive and find a way to make wherever your place is a better place.
0: I love that. Okay. Thanks, Rob. We appreciate you, uh, taking the time to talk with us.
1: You'll take care.